Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans? Here live with Tim. Uh, it's uh, our first time back in the same room recording a podcast and God, I don't know how long, Tim. Easily over a year. I was just trying to think of what movie it was we talked about in here. Was it Was it a Carpenter? It could have been. It felt like Halloween. It felt like it might have been the thing. You know, it's hard to tell, though, because I watch the thing like, I don't know, five times a year. So it's not really a seasonal affair for me. I have a feeling it was around Halloween time. But yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a long time. And uh, it's funny. We're coming back and we're here with more horror. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are again. And I mean, we're going to talk about I saw that you put in the notes whether or not this movie is a horror movie or it's a family drama. But we'll dig into it. We're doing our second M. Night Shyamalan movie today. Uh, we're doing talking about Signs from 2002. Uh, but before we do, uh, you know, we're trying to get in this habit here. Tay, how you been? What's going on recently? Well, um, I was going to stop and do the same exact thing because uh, <laughs> things have been pretty busy for me lately. But uh, it's been really fun. I got to put together uh, my own little movie because you run your own film festival annually for your birthday. Mm-hmm. And that was this week. So uh, happy, happy birthday, Tim. Appreciate and, it. Uh, yeah, no, five years ago, our our sort of community of friends decided that it wasn't acceptable to uh, to just go to a bar and drink or go to someone's house and drink for a birthday. We had to do something more activity-based, and I, uh, I very overzealously said, oh, okay, I'll tell all my friends they have to make short movies, and we'll screen them all together and uh, give out awards and things like that, and uh, it's it's been fun doing it. This was a great year. We hosted it at a uh, local art gallery. We had a wide range of films, some, uh, you know, documentary footage of geese uh, set to old-timey jazz music. Uh, That was fantastic, yeah. We had a truly competent um, home invasion horror movie that uh, actually one of our listeners, we mentioned them just a couple weeks ago on the 2022 recap episode, uh, Kurt, Curdy Boy, uh, put together a really solid little horror movie. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. It's like one of those YouTube films that you might see and say like oh that director can go make something big now like that mm-hmm. director if they if someone sees this they're gonna get to go make something yeah it, it was I mean, that like, high well, technical of technical caliber and the score was fantastic mm-hmm. um shout out to luke hansberger for that too yeah yeah luke hansberger was great in it uh our friend uh, our mutual friend serena atala uh, did some of the music and uh, they had some technical prowess from uh local uh i don't know indie music impresario matt jekyll uh, but, uh, if, if, and when we get clearance to, uh, to share a link to that, uh, check it in the show notes. It's a, it's a good use of six minutes of your life. Yeah. It's honestly a fantastic little film. Um, and it's, it's like these little treats that come up every time that your film festival comes up, Tim, that make it so worthwhile to like attend and to like, I, in my opinion, keep the show running. Like, I think you got to keep it going. We'll see. The, the whole theme of this year was that it was the last year, which may or may not have been a marketing ploy to really drum up more interest and uh, and get some more films submitted, or maybe it was the truth. We'll find out this time next year. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to rush past it yet. Tay, you did. Uh, you made a little horror movie yourself, a little bit more abstract, I'd say, than Kurt's. Um, I definitely, you know, I, I feel like you should you should keep your ringer on. You never know if A24 is going to give you a call. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if A24 would like my use of uh, cinemato- or my cinematography or my use of lenses. Uh, I used the cheapest lens in my mm-hmm. in my collection, one that I picked up when I was like a teenager, just because it was one I could afford. And why it, do you use it for the movie though? Uh, I was traveling and yeah. uh, I took a lens that I didn't care about if anything happened to it, 
That's a good call. It's a 10 to 18 millimeter lens. 10 to 18. Yes. Uh, it's a, uh, interesting. Does that, that verges on fisheye? It, it, it is if, a fisheye in many right. ways, but uh, for some reason, it's just such a janky, bad lens. It's the lightest lens I've ever held in my hand out of anybody's lenses. Mm. Um, but I thought it was like, you know, kind of a fun challenge to set myself up with. Can I shoot something in like two days with a wide angle lens and basically no reshoots? Yeah. And just uh, what you get is what you got. And that's, that's once again, why I like this festival because it pushes me to be creative once, <laughs> once a year. And, uh, it's a lot of fun to just be a part of. So, um, props to you, Tim, for keeping that thing running for so long. It's a, it's a lot of fun being a part of and seeing all the people who turn up every year, um, quite a, r- a range of ages. Mm-hmm. Um, from yeah. young people right across the board to like very old people, um, mm-hmm. everybody who's equally as into it, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a great time. No, it's uh, it's become a nice tradition. So we'll see what happens next year. And again, check the show notes if we have any of those movies to share. We'll uh, we'll put them there. But with that, I also just wanted to, in sort of recapping recently, I did go catch uh, Knock at the Cabin, which is uh, sort of why we picked M Night Shyamalan for this month. Uh, I don't think you got a chance to see it, Tay. You've been you've been busy. Yeah, I'm sorry. I still have not got the chance to see it prior to this recording. But uh, goals to go this week. I do want to see it, mm-hmm. and I want to get that theater experience before everyone ruins it for me. Uh, I've avoided spoilers for the most part, but I have some theories that I think might be right. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah, that's kind of how it goes. I uh, no, I mean, I enjoyed going to see it. I would recommend the theater for it. Um, even more so than some other M night films that I've seen, uh, there's some very effective use of like super close, super shallow close-ups. Um, it directly informed by the script. It's very, um, intentional shooting, which of course we talked about M night's got a great sort of overarching eye and working with people like talk Fujimoto on the two films we're talking about this month, very clear, uh, collaboration in terms of how he storyboards something and why he's making those choices, and that's definitely present in Knock at the Cabin. Wait, F- Fujimoto didn't come back to do Knock at the no, Cabin? No, no, I was just saying for Signs okay. and uh, and Sixth Sense. Um, Knock at the assumed, Cabin. I assumed he, he had retired. Yeah. So Knock at the Cabin is actually kind of interesting because it has two cinematographers. Oh, okay. And in an interview that I listened to on the Big Picture podcast uh, with M. Knight, uh, they talked about how it sounds like it was a scheduling thing. Only one guy was available for so long. And the one guy, I'm sorry, I don't have the names right in front of me, um, but I'm trying because we're in the same room together. I'm trying to keep the keyboard clacking to a minimum. <laughs> um, but the one guy was the guy who shot uh, uh, the lighthouse with Eggers. Oh, Jaron Blaschke. Yes. And so obviously like a very direct one-to-one, like you're locked in one place together, indoor shooting, things like that. He was um, just one of the cinematographers to this? He was one of the two, and the other one, I guess, shot more of the outside stuff um, in the sort of the immediate, like, outdoor yard of the of the cabin, of which there are some sequences. Um, and I'm not... It was kind of hard to tell what M. Night was saying specifically about it, whether it was scheduling or... Often scheduling can mean there were creative differences and they had an issue with somebody. He didn't say anything negative about anybody. It just, just seemed kind of odd, and I don't think... I don't think I entirely believe that they're like, well, we need completely dis- different cinematographers for indoor and outdoor, right? That's a regular, but it's very, uh, it's interesting. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm not against it. Um, assuming the cinematographers got along. Like when you say that kind of thing, usually I'm just like, oh, did something go wrong and they had to can someone halfway through mm-hmm. or something? And hopefully that's yeah, not the Yeah, the case. other one was Lowell A. Meyer, um, who just, just taken a peek. Uh, I don't recognize much of what of what he shot. Um, yeah, I mean, Thunder Road from 2018 is the only title I recognize. Okay. So, I don't know. Good looking movie, though, and some great choices. So definitely go find it in the theater. Um, if you're like me, Instagram is serving you ads all the time for it. I think it's doing quite well. Um We'll see how it does in a week when uh, when Ant Man comes out, but I, I I honestly don't think Ant Man three is gonna trend too high either in the box office. I think it's a, it's gonna be a bit of a light month. Yeah, we will see. Um, March typically isn't the peak for theaters, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, from by all accounts, I've heard that this is a worthwhile movie seeing in theaters. Um, speaking of Knock at the Cabin, mm-hmm. um, and I I want to talk a lot more about the phenomena that goes along with a Shyamalan film. If you didn't catch our last episode on The Sixth Sense, I do recommend you go check that out because we'd covered a lot of ground about uh, M. Night Shyamalan and kind of what he, like his beginnings and kind of the both the luck and the skill that came with delivering such a successful, monumental uh, breakthrough film like The Sixth mm-hmm. Sense. So um, we're not going to retread that ground today, but I do want to get into a lot of the experience of what a Shyamalan film is and what it means in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, I do think we should get to our top of the line notes. Absolutely. So we're talking about Signs. Uh, came out August 2nd, 2002, and it concerns a former priest who comes to terms with the loss of faith as strange phenomena on his farm and around the world suggest the arrival of an invading alien species on Earth. It stars Mel Gibson and was written, directed, and edited by M. Night Shyamalan. Make sure you um, check out the show notes so you can see where you can watch it. But uh, as with almost all Shyamalan stuff from this production house, uh, for Canadians, it's on Disney+. Plus. Right on. Yeah. And I mean, so we talked about The Sixth Sense, and then he did Unbreakable, right? And then now, and then he did Signs after that. Yeah, so this was our audience pick, and uh, so we're just skipping over one of the... I, I would call them the three core Shyamalan mm-hmm. films, but from The Sixth Sense to Unbreakable to Signs. Yeah. Um, after this, there's a long and winding road of success and failure in his mm-hmm. career, and a lot of people would revert back to these three movies to say that they're the probably the most interesting or probably most likely the best movies he's made. Yeah, probably. Like, I think that's probably the easiest argument to make. It's not, honestly, like, I think we were talking about this. This one didn't hold up quite as well as I thought it would. I remembered liking it yeah, same. a lot more, and I think just under a bit more analysis, you know, it's all, it's that effect of doing an episode on a movie. As you're looking a little bit more closely at it, there's some things that didn't hold up for me. And watching it, like, you and I both watched them up, like, twice or multiple yeah. times, or at least in part over the course of a week and that can change a lot about your perspective of a movie absolutely and and it's not to say like oh i did like it and now i don't there are just my my mind sort of changed on some aspects but there's still a lot that i really love in this movie uh, i think it's got a great vibe and a great tone uh, really good sort of ensemble performances um i actually think in terms of direction of actors uh may, maybe like maybe among m night's best like possibly the best i i really like the performances he gets out of these the the cast in this yeah and i'm sorry to keep bearing the lead i am i do really want to talk about the phenomena 
of a Shyamalan film and mm-hmm. kind of like how that's changed and like the problems that I'm starting to see arise in signs. But one thing that has stumped me going back to these earlier works of his is just like, where did some of the talent go? Um, some of it is just like getting bogged down by the Shyamalan factor in his later works. But mm-hmm. there's something fundamentally strong about the way he commands his actors and his cinematography and his editing in the first three films that we're talking about Mm -hmm. in the sixth sense in unbreakable and in signs and i just don't know where that went somewhere down the line of all the things that could disappear from a director's skill set why would that go away with experience yeah and i mean to have like a trite take on it is uh, I think to quote this movie, to quote um, Joaquin Phoenix's character, Meryl, who says, Felt wrong not to swing. I feel like M. Night swings every time. Real hard. And I think the way that I'm interpreting that idea or that metaphor for his career is like, even when he's figured out his his zone and things like that with the sixth sense and unbreakable and signs, he, he will keep pushing his own envelope on the way that he directs actors or who he's going to cast or what he expects from someone. Um, I think it, it's turned him into a very exciting creative who's had now like a very long career. And his, his most recent era are these things that feel like even bigger swings. And maybe they don't work, but he's also, I mean, he's self-financing them, which I love. They almost all make great money. And, and I'm kind of okay with that. And I, like, I got to be honest, like, you and I argued about whether or not to put old on the uh, on the audience uh, vote, the listeners vote. Yeah, and, I did not uh, want it on there. We w- we went against it, and I rewatched it. I really like that movie. I- I've gone from like, oh, that's kind of like sneakily like a fun movie to like, I actually think this is like one of the best like um, takes on like a Twilight Zone idea. Well, and that's I guess where I saw the problem with that script because mm-hmm. I'm seeing all the ads and the trailer for it i just thought that's not a feature length movie yeah i already can see the arc of everything and i don't really care about whatever rug he's gonna pull out from under me in this movie it just won't impress me and i'm probably just very too big-headed and strong-minded about that idea and i will go check it out i I think you got a bit of a callus worked up against it and like to the movie's benefit and and uh, disappointment, like, it became a huge part of meme culture, too. Like, people love talking about the idea of a beach that makes you old almost more than they seem to want to go see the movie, even though it did very well. Well, isn't that just the Shyamalan effect? Right? People love talking about it, you know? Because and, which of is, one, like, I mean, not one component, not yeah. multiple components. Yeah. There's one part of his scripts that seemed to, like, just worm their way into people's brains, which gets into the zeitgeist of pop culture. Mm-hmm. And he's been able to do this so consistently. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, he's always, like, he always sort of commands, uh, like, attention. He can be a part of the conversation when he's going to make a movie. And it can be that, like, this is the happening and everyone agrees it's not good. Or, like, this is Avatar or The the Last Airbender and everyone agrees it's not good. Or it can be something like, yeah, Old's Meme Life or... I think probably Dave Bautista is the the centerpiece of this conversation right now where people are, you know, they're saying, oh, he's undeniably the best wrestler turned actor now like it's not even close anymore like and i'm a john cena fan for the mm-hmm. record too I, yeah. I think he's been really good in his movies but uh yeah there, i don't think there's much compare much comparison i think batista is one of the better actors working today and one of the actors who i find 
like unbelievably unique mm-hmm. in just his like physical presence and what he can bring on an emotional level. Whatever Bautista is in, I just think he elevates it and I like I will continue to seek out his work. So um mm-hmm. M Night got me with that one. Yeah. I, I will pay for the first time in a while to see an M Night Shyamalan. Actually I can't shouldn't say a while. I, I pay to see Split. Mm-hmm. So hasn't been that long and yeah. uh I mean, just just like us, M. Night, like he saw Blade Runner 2049, and he's like, who's that guy? Because you've never seen a miracle. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. That's the connection, so. You, you know what? I think I actually paid to see Glass, so M. Night Shyamalan probably owes me money. That <laughs> sounds like the bad guys teaming up. Yeah, you really don't like Glass, eh? I don't remember. That's what, a bottom tier movie. I, I, gotta, I gotta tell you, I don't remember what happens in Glass. I think I'm almost positive I saw it, but it may have been on a on a plane. Okay, major spoiler warning here for anyone who <laughs> actually cares. They all die. Right. They just die. Right, like Willis and, and McAvoy yeah. and Jackson. I I don't remember what happens to Glass. Right. But the other two, like Bruce Willis, like dies in a puddle. Oh, right, because he he's water is his weakness. He he can drown. Right. Yeah, that's boy. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to watch it again, but I think this is one of the ones that not that's not immediately streamable. <laughs> Probably for good reason. I think yeah. that movie should be hidden away because um, Unbreakable and Split are pretty good. Yeah. And I mean, so while his, I think, modern era of movies, he he himself sort of coined it as he's trying to make the best B movies out there. Right. And like, I think that kind of fits for like old and the visit and stuff like that. Knock at the cabin feels a little bit more ambitious than saying the best B movie ever. It looks bigger. Yeah. Yeah, in a way. And and just like, I don't know. It's, again, like, Bautista's presence in it, you're just kind of like, this is, like, a little bit more than, like, a red box or, like, a Netflix straight two, which is kind of what you feel about B movies in the modern era. But Well, I, I like what you said earlier. I think they feel more like Twilight Zone episodes. Mm. They, yeah. They really do. They feel... And that might be the problem that started happening with the movies is mm-hmm. they just like they're they're feature length TV episodes. Yeah. And they're just stretched a little too thin. I don't I don't ever think the pacing is a problem with them, though. It's okay, usually like in the modern era. I think it's usually like script and story choices where he again, he takes a swing and I'm like, that didn't connect for me. Um, I think he's got still just like a wonderful knack for pacing. I, again, there are movies where obviously that's that's not true with with some of his uh some of his uh, lesser fares, but like, uh, you know, knock the cabin, my rewatch of old, like he's always got something going on. He knows there's always momentum. There's that, always that's a reason for, sure. for a scene. Yeah. Um, but sorry to bring this all back. Like he's got this modern era of twilight zone episodes or B movies or what have you, but we're talking about signs, which is like pretty stripped down family drama. And like you, you were talking yeah. about how like this, this isn't really a sci-fi movie or it's not a sci-fi movie. Except in like, like name only. That's the fact. Like aliens exist in this, so like technically you have to call it science fiction because it's not science fact that we know of. Yeah, but it's I not guess. concerned with any of the sci-fi things that an alien movie is. There's nothing about like we got to find out everything about them, or we have to find their one weakness. Like that exists in this, but not in the analytical way. Like they're looking for a a, a secret method by which to overcome them yeah it's, it's all yep. it's all faith and destiny based 
It's it, all these non-scientific things. It even lacks the distinct iconography of science fiction films, right? Even, even from, like, the soundscapes that you typically associate with science fiction, both soundtrack and sound mixing in mm-hmm. science fiction films is usually very uh, electronic and yeah. computer-based. This is not like that at all. Um, there's usually um, distinct iconography that are associated with aliens. We don't get any of that kind of thing. In fact, one one of my favorite things about this movie is the subtlety of everything alien-related. The reason why this is such a grounded family drama film, not an alien invasion movie as much, is because everything takes place from the perspective of the central characters. We know that there's a global disaster happening with the alien invasion, but we only get the perspective of the characters seeing it on TV, yeah. which they actually turn off. They turn off all media for a uh, about 20 minutes of the film runtime and in this in this span of them like neglecting to look at the news mm-hmm. we don't get to see any of that either right yeah there's no one with any authority in this you never see like the president make a, an ad an address there's yeah. no boardrooms there's no war rooms like you've got cherry jones as a local police officer who you know when they first report uh, an intruder on their farm she's like An out-of-town woman stopped by the diner yesterday afternoon and started yelling and cussing because they didn't have her favorite cigarettes at the vending machine. She scared a couple of the customers. No one's seen her since. There's like a European lady here who asked for cigarettes, like maybe it was her. Like, it's so small town, it's so rural. Cherry Jones plays it really well, too. The small-town cop. My goodness. I, I don't know if you saw my note on Cherry Jones. I didn't have anything interesting to say. I just, like, I wish she was in more stuff I watched. It, she it. she she's really so good. She really fit the small-town vibe, in my opinion. Like, mm-hmm. if I'm casting something small-town, she's she's got to be in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, her, like, the cast in general is pretty great because I think maybe the key to casting well for Shyamalan is generally, like, you need people who can sell sincerity. Because the dialogue, even when it's good, is going to be achingly sincere and earnest. Which, it's kind of an argument against Bruce Willis, because I don't think there's anything really sincere about like his every guy thing. But so many other actors are so good in other ways, like Bautista or Jonathan Groff in Knock at the Cabin. Really people who can sell like watery-eyed sincerity when they're speaking about something ostensibly ridiculous. And right. I mean, same, same with Gibson. Um Phoenix really, Joaquin Phoenix plays Merrill, uh, Gibson's character's brother. Phoenix delivers like a, a real specific innocence. I think you can tell the age gap there, even though like he's he, but he still has to be one of the adults because so much of this movie is like, how are the adults going to take care of the kids, right? And- but there's this gap between Gibson and Phoenix's uh, performances that I think is largely like maturity and and innocence. Yeah, I feel like Joaquin Phoenix in this movie doesn't feel the need to go over the top in any way or Mm -hmm. even to overact. I think his ability to play this character as like kind of like uninteresting in in many ways Mm -hmm. and he's like kind of just there to mitigate a lot of the conversation between uh, Graham, who's played by Mel Gibson, and his Mm -hmm. children. Yeah. And we only get a bit of backstory on him, which is, in my opinion, a little heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. You didn't used to play baseball, did you? Shit, I know you. You're Merrill Hess. I was there the day you hit that 507-footer over the left field wall. 
set the record. Man, that thing had a motor on it. But it's interesting in some ways, but like overall, as like his acting choices don't make this character particularly interesting. In fact, I think it's incredibly uh, humble of him to kind of mm-hmm. take a back seat to Graham in many of the scenes. And then the scenes where he's told to elevate, I think he's able to fully do that. He's, in my opinion, one of the strongest actors working today. Mm-hmm. But this is an incredibly understated performance by him. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's very supportive. He gets he gets a moment here or there, and even when he has the moments, they're not very big. And part of it is the script, right? Meryl doesn't have an arc in this movie so much. He doesn't have, like, the fall and the rise or a break point or anything like that. Yeah, he just sort of arrives where he has to. Um, And you're right. He plays these important small small roles in interpersonal things that are going on, right? And you learn a little bit about him, like there's a couch sequence where they get to show that he's scared, right? And he's asking his brother, like, can you just go back to when you were a priest and you could comfort people, please? Some people are probably thinking this is the end of the world. That's true. Do you think it could be? Yes. How can you say that? That wasn't the answer you wanted. Couldn't you pretend to be like you used to be? <sighs> Give me some comfort. Yeah, it's that's a really great scene. Mm-hmm. Or, that's like the performance that you you kind of expect from him. But mm-hmm. then after that scene, it's kind of over. And uh, and other times, like he acts as a foil for Graham, where you learn more about Graham. Like again, one of the scenes that I suggested we talked about, and we didn't go with it, was where. They both run around the house, right? And he's saying, like, well, you have to run and swear. And he's like, well, I don't like swearing, right? Explain that crazy. You know, curse and stuff. Want me to curse? You, you don't mean it. It's just for show. What? It won't be convincing. It doesn't sound natural when I curse. And, like, you, you kind of learn more about Gibson than you do about Phoenix's character through that process, even yeah. though Gibson is the passive one in that sequence. It's very funny. I mean, like... Let's talk about Gibson. Uh, undeniably bad person. Like we, sure, we're sure. all in agreement on that. Kind of a frustratingly great actor. I wish he wasn't that good because it'd be easier I'll, to I'll just say forget him. Director as well. Yeah, I think. I, I think mean, the guy is just uber talented mm-hmm. when it comes to filmmaking. As a director, as an actor, I've always been a huge fan. Personal things aside, I think his performance in Signs is fantastic and elevates this too, way more than it should have been. Yep, I mean, there is clearly, like, uh, Shyamalan was going for a very subdued tone in general. No one has, like, a big monologue. There's not a lot of yelling. When there is yelling, it's still kind of quiet. I don't really know... I don't really know how you achieve that balance, but it's actually it's actually kind of fascinating, right? Well, there are... We're going to talk about one of the only times where there's actual yelling. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, yeah, our scene is really the only time Gibson goes for it. The rest of the time, I kind of love that... This movie, because, you know, it opens with the with this idea that there are these unexplainable signs. And every time you learn a little bit more, it becomes a little bit clearer that, like, this is an unnatural phenomenon. This is not something that can be explained except by something that will change the way you consider your existence. And you're, talking, your... you're talking just about the extraterrestrial activity? Yeah. It'll, it'll affect uh, your faith, the things that you believe in. It'll challenge the paradigms under which you were raised. And I think what you have is, like... Every character has a slow release, slow acting PTSD. 
they're immediately all kind of shell-shocked. I love, again, we're not dealing with, like, scientific experts or soldiers or anyone who might be even a little bit more equipped to address these things head-on, like in all these other movies we love, like Arrival and stuff like that. Yeah, the kids have that book that's kind of their authority. Well, the, yeah, the kids, like, they, they don't even, you can't even, like, Google it, right? They have the TV, which is whatever the news is showing you, and then they're like, does the local bookshop outside of our farm have anything on aliens? It's like, yeah, we have this, like... Who Which knows they like accidentally ordered or something. The yeah. bookstore accidentally orders this book and they have one alien book in the store. Mm-hmm. So you have a distinctly like rural, small setting, right? And everyone is like, you're right. Like it's entirely told from the perspective of like people who have no way of like really addressing these threats other than like the ways that you would address like, I don't know, a home invader, right? So they board the place up. And they try to keep their kids feeling okay. But again, I think they're all immediately a little shell-shocked. And Gibson's got the best version of that performance where, like, it, it feels like that duck in a pond thing where, like, outwardly he's he seems very calm and he speaks very low and quietly, right? He's got that great voice. But it's on, like, the verge. He's just, well, it's like the duck's, the duck's feet are, like, paddling furiously gotcha. beneath the surface. Got the metaphor now. Got right? It. Um, it's just, like, he's on, he's just on the edge of completely losing it because even before the signs appeared, he's a widower, he was a he was a, a priest, and now he's he's forsaken his faith because he he's angry at God because God killed his wife, um, which is is also like that that information is meted out very slowly. I think that's very gracefully done how they yeah. show you. Or you first understand that like you know people are calling him father, and he's asking them not to call him father anymore. And then Cherry Jones mentioning his wife, and 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 the, the kids mentioning mom being gone, and then you actually get the actual flashbacks. I think the deployment of information is really strong on that front. Um, and everything you're talking about being built into his character is why it, it's like why his character handles this situation in such an interesting way. It's why like everything feels, it, I, I think his, the fact that he's a character in crisis on a number of levels elevates this whole narrative to a different stratosphere because you have a guy who doesn't believe in social systems pretty much. You can yeah. kind of extrapolate that. And that makes this very much a, we're going to like stick together as a family. We're going to board up our house and this is it. We don't have any other people who are going to come support us. This is it. And that to me all like, it's not even specifically explicitly said in the script. It's like how you feel as an audience member, knowing the character that you've seen for an hour in, mm-hmm. into the movie at this point. And then you, when you actually get to the invasion part, you you feel like you're just there with them and there's no there's no external factors and the movie works really well with that idea especially comparing it to pretty much anything post this regarding aliens invading Mm -hmm. where it just has to be like ensemble has to be like multiple narrative structure has to be like very action oriented or, or at least like there's a plan there's always like well we have to get to this place or we got to do this thing and whether right. it's like the plan is to attack the aliens or to avoid them it ha- there has to be some like propellant there and this they're like well we're we're here right like and this is this is where we are we already know we know enough to know that like we're not getting anywhere and like also that like the aliens are everywhere and they are in they are in far greater numbers over major cities so like there are fewer of them where we are right now and you have like you know M Night Shyamalan's cameo character who's called Ray Ray Reddy 
I think. Yeah, so it's a bad name. It's a bad name. Uh, pretty good performance though. I actually Honestly, don't think he's that bad. Yeah, he's always seemingly pulls them off. People give him a, pulls uh, them off. Give him a hard time. I do think like he has this unease about him, which when it fits the setting and the plot, works very well in his favor. Um, sometimes when I think he's supposed to be more of a comedic character, you can kind of tell you're like, well, this is someone who's not an actor who's on screen. They're just a they're a little contrived, but. Um, a anyway, la Tarantino. Ray, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ray Reddy, though, um, does mention where he's like, he he makes something about, some mention about how they don't like water. So he's like, I'm going to go to the lake. Maybe that'll help. I'm not sure. But again, yeah. Again, none of those alien movie hallmarks where there is a method or there is an attempt to figure something out, really. Again, the stuff that they do find out, and we sort of have talked about this and kind of agreed the stuff that like all at the very end of the movie that all just sort of works out all this destiny and fate based stuff, which is maybe the least interesting and the least effective uh, on multiple rewatches. Again, it's like, you know, a greater power is arranging for that. So it's not a matter of like a scientist figuring out that they're averse to water. Or like when you think about the fact that like our air has a lot of water in it. So like, why aren't they melting all the time? You know, there's a lot. None of it holds up. But like, that's also don't let me. Please don't mistake me. That's a dumb argument. That's a dumb thing to do to movies. Like, that's not why this matters. Yeah. Um. I guess where I struggle with my thoughts on it is that I like the idea that this movie isn't uh, a conventional alien invasion. Mm -hmm. So when they're in the cellar and then they wake up and Meryl's like, "They're leaving." That's what they said. The aliens are already, like, leaving. Mm-hmm. It's all happening off screen. I, I'm really down for that idea. I think that's great that we that we kind of just stick with the family through a night of hell, and that's mm-hmm. it. At the same time, I understand the need for perhaps more of an ambitious conclusion. Mm-hmm. So you have to, like, have this scene where they go upstairs, and then there's still the alien there. Yeah. And they all these moments of convenience or... Uh, coincidence come into play Mm -hmm. and i think there's still a way to execute that properly i just don't think i think that it takes too long i think the final scene could have been cut in about half yeah and then everything doesn't feel as like remember this from earlier in the movie this is why it's a factor if it was like so fast you almost couldn't grasp everything that was happening and then you kind of like upon digestion almost like the bruce willis was dead the whole time exactly thing, right where you're yeah. like oh i remembered that thing that didn't kind of didn't make any sense and now that's the reason for it and so this is where i see m night kind of losing this shine already mm-hmm. he's he's too worried about fulfilling every plot hole yeah. that he's set up and this idea that as a filmmaker you need to like be this kind of filmmaker when you go into like making your next project, I think this is like the beginning of his downfall in many ways, because he's already in his head. He knows what works. He knows how to be successful. And he believes that this is the model and mm-hmm. the model didn't work for long. Yeah. It kind of crumbled uh, bo- I mean, that... both because of the way people watch movies and because people kind of see it coming and your expectations don't get lower, they get higher. Yeah. I mean, that proclivity for being the the focal point of the movie conversation when it comes out, you can kind of see that here. Because um, I'm, I'm sure that, like, the as we talked about in the last episode, sort of like the iconic status of a Shyamalan twist was born with The Sixth Sense, right? And then Unbreakable has, like, some fate elements again that all sort of line up like this. And, yep. like, that worked very well. Yeah, that and movie you can see, pretty good like, for that. 
you can see a definite need to do that in a sign script. And like, I also remember being a kid when this movie came out and people being like, oh, well, like the, um, the dying wife said this and it lined up with this and, uh, the little girls leaving water everywhere. And then like, that's what's there. And like, you know, I was at, at that point, I would have been, you know, 10 ish, um, 10, 11, 12 in that area where some someone on the playground is like, let me walk you through the whole plot because that's what kids used to do Yep. Uh, when they didn't have phones. Um, you could see it definitely being like, as a kid, I was like, that's so cool. Everything lined up. And now you're kind of watching, you're kind of like, well, like you can just write that to be whatever you want. And the, the trick becomes like obscuring it enough, whether yeah. that's in not looking directly at it or having Gibson say stuff like, my wife's brain was fried because there was no blood in it at the end of her life, so she was speaking gibberish, right? As he as he explains to Meryl. I, see, and that's the that's where I have a hard time kind of criticizing this because I like the setup scenes. Mm-hmm. I really like the scene where Graham is speaking with Bo about why she's why this glass of water isn't good for her, yeah. why this one isn't good, why this one isn't good, and it's a beautiful like parenting moment. It's mm-hmm. it's this beautiful contradiction in the Shyamalan film where he's it's overly set up but Mm. all the setups are really well acted and important familial moments between father daughter or Mm. whoever um and I like these moments these moments are what make his movies like good on a different level of Mm. like on an entirely different level where it's just like good character development and good character drama but then it's like oh but I need to have this be important later yeah and we need, we need, I need people to get that Shyamalan experience in the last 15 minutes. And this, yeah. Fe- yeah, this just feels a tad overwrought. And I think you're right. It may just be an editing thing. It may yeah. just be a pacing thing of that last chunk. Cause you're right. Like Meryl hits that alien way too many times with a baseball bat. It's too many setups yeah. of him hitting. It's not the amount of times he actually hits him. Mm-hmm. It's how many times it's like, Oh, I guess the alien's on his feet again. Better swing again, Meryl. Yeah, it doesn't feel super triumphant. No. Um, and, and part also, of that like, is the, the alien being the, horribly like, CGI'd. Yeah. But that they could have, once again, this problem, this is a fix for that problem. It's like, make it shorter. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like, you, Shyamalan definitely is aware of Jaws, right? So it's like, oh, my creature doesn't look great. I can shoot around it, right? And he does kind of, and I actually think that contributes to... Oh, yeah, they did. There's kind of a very weird geography in that living room where every now and then, like, the alien will get hit and then, like, they'll go to a wide shot and it's just not showing one corner. But I'm like, I don't feel like that's where the alien was in the last cut. That's what I mean about the number of setups it takes Meryl to hit him. It's not the amount of bat hits on Mm -hmm. the alien. It's the amount of times the camera reestablishes position. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that scene takes so long, but it's only, like, two minutes of him hitting the alien. But that's, like... A minute and a half too long, in my opinion. Yeah. When the underlying element of just swing Meryl mm-hmm. is like that's like the the mantra mm-hmm. that they're swing we're, away. Yeah, we're or sorry, swing away Meryl. Swing away Meryl is the mantra we're trying to follow here. Um, just have him one big swing, and then mm-hmm. he the alien falls into like the TV. All the glasses fall. Yeah. One sh- like one moment. That'd be great. There you go. And then it all comes together in your head as an audience member, all the water around. I mean, yeah, we can, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can try to re-edit M. Night Shyamalan's movies all we want, but they are what they are. And uh, I think this one, again, the stuff that we love is the family stuff. I do think this is the beginning as well. Uh, you were saying about some issues that he has with sort of the choices he makes. I think this is more of the beginning as well of um, 
his focus on like family and like how you feel about your kids and like how vulnerable you feel as a parent who can't necessarily guarantee that they can protect their kids because that shows up a lot in his most recent movies it's in knock the cabin it's an old it's a couple of those other ones too and compared to or six sense which it's obviously a family movie there's parent and child and things like that but it's not as i don't think it's as focused on like family as it is uh you know faith and and communication and even just like more general interpersonal relationships you know it's and, not a parent movie. And even the though, fear of those systems collapsing on you. Yeah. Yeah. But not 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 quite as much of a parent movie as this is and some of his other ones. Even I feel, though you I got feel Tony like Collette. This would have probably been him growing into being a parent himself, would be my I, guess. I'd be curious if, if you know, one of his first kids was born around Unbreakable or, or in between or whenever he started working yeah. on the script, you know? Just the the preoccupation with with parenting in his early films is uh and connecting with his with yeah. like the protagonist connecting with their children in his first three in these first three big films i keep wanting to say they're his first three films but they're not <laughs> yeah as we know these are his third fourth and fifth films yeah. and i mean before we jump into our scene which we will do very shortly uh if we're talking about uh parenting and kids we got to talk about abigail breslin very sure <laughs> briefly because she's four or five in this movie yeah and it's kind of insane what she pulls off. And I do think that to a degree she is just like a, a, like a fully formed child actor because she's so young that she can't even have um, pretense or contrivance. I think if they just say like, here's your line, repeat it right after us um, and look in this direction, it, it does the job. But there's certain, certainly some ability on her part because she has to, fulfill really long takes yeah quite often they're not in the cutting film. around her yeah and she's you know she'll have an action towards the maybe not mm-hmm. as much dialogue towards the end of a long take but she'll have action towards the end of a long take that is really reliant upon her like nailing her eye lines and things yeah. like that she's it, really good and none of it is like robotic right no they're not like no, you no, have no. to go put this water down over there i think they set up her character so that her vibe is very well understood and maybe her, maybe very strategically her vibe and her tone as a person lines up with a child so young that they maybe can't conceive of what acting actually means right because she's four or five yeah she's she's insanely young it's it's very rare to see an actor cast so young and Mm -hmm. but i feel like you must be right because the ability to convey the neuroses of such a character like her like the one she plays in the film is like was probably beyond the capacity of a four or five year old to understand fully Mm -hmm. how to play yeah so this is her taking direction of how to say certain things and just doing it clearly. Like, um, I think Rory Culkin's also very good in most mm-hmm. of this movie. There's some yeah. parts that he maybe like that I didn't like as much with him, but overall, I think the script writing and the sensibility around the kids characters are, is really strong from the direction standpoint, but Abigail Breslin stands out, um, very much so on this rewatch, especially just thinking about working with children. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, is it ever a nightmare? So yeah. um, the ability for her to, uh, like, and I put this in a note too, she carries a lot of the levity of the of the film. A lot of the scenes that rely upon, like, uh, alleviating the audience rely mm-hmm. upon her saying something funny yeah. with the right tone and right timing. And I think that's, an incredibly valuable asset to have having a kid actor who can carry that much weight for you. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, props to Shyamalan. He's probably in the hall of fame for directors of children. Yeah. Right. Like so many of his movies 
he absolutely kills it like from casting through to direction the kids just they do exactly what they need to and they become you know in the case of Haley joel osmond like maybe one of the most famous child performances ever uh and abigail breslin's no slouch herself either no. she became quite an actor yeah um, i think like quite prolific she was in this and then breakout was probably little miss sunshine yes um yeah which did she get the oscar for that she may have i don't think so because i think uh i think i would i i would stand out my memory as someone winning so young but maybe she did mm-hmm. win she definitely got nominated yeah but uh yeah i mean we talked about all aspects of this for a while but i mean let's let's hop in the, into the scene we got it's some of the themes we already touched on so we can really dig right in yeah, um, so before we get to our scene, I did want to say that the tagline for the movie <laughs> is... Oh, I know this one. It's, uh, what's a bad miracle? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which, I, I think it's a pretty good alternate. It's, there's, well, I don't know. You The one you put in here is actually not the one that I knew mm. as the tagline. You, the one that we have here in our notes is, it's not like they didn't warn us. Yeah, and one of my least favorite things, it's in capital case. I don't know if you guys know what that means, but it's where every word, the first letter is capitalized. It's not all caps. I really can't stand capital case. It always looks bad. Yeah, I don't quite sentence. know the know the meaning of yeah. that. Um, <laughs> I I heard, or I saw another poster that the tagline was, what if there are no such thing as coincidences? Which is that one's better. more on the nose, but it does make way more sense for the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I just, I think when I was looking it up, I was thinking about it. and Or no, when I was watching the movie, I was like, there's a little bit of Nope. Or like Nope has a little bit of this, you know? Completely different direction. Completely different Completely ideas, different, but, like, there's but some yeah. overlap, you know? Just the whole idea of fate and coincidence coming back full circle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, what, uh, what scene are we doing today, Tay? So the scene we're doing today, I like to call The Last Supper. I'll make some sandwiches. I want spaghetti. Spaghetti sounds great. What do you want, Morgan? Anything. French toast. And mashed potatoes. Now we're talking. Mm -hmm. Um, It's from 1 hour 9 and 30 seconds to uh, 1 hour 18 minutes and 42 seconds into the film. We got about a 9 minute scene here. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the scene is amazing. Um, and it's the last amazing part of the film, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's followed by the cellar sequence, which I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You like the cellar sequence a bit more than me, but mm-hmm. um, this to me is like the last of the of the great scenes of this movie. I think there's like four or five really, really good scenes. Um, and in this scene, Graham, Merrill, Morgan, and Bo settle in for an extravagant last supper on the eve of the alien invasion. That's about as brief as I can go with the synopsis, but yeah. it's uh, that's pretty much the way the scene breaks down. Um, it's a really brilliant opening shot to this scene of the camera swooping around and settling on a very shallow focused Mel Gibson mm-hmm. um, as his family stands uh, in the background and they eventually come into focus as they tell him what they want for their extravagant last dinner. Yeah, I mean, I love the way that this plays on a couple different levels where you have, um, you know right at surface you're like oh well, this is kind of fun it is kind of like you know why not let's just dig into the freezer let's get everything out let's let's be indulgent things like that and then you think about it again you're like oh they might not ever have another dinner yeah so like why and he's kind of like this is where like you know um graham's character kind of really starts to break because like he's smiling he's kind of dopey where they're being like we're gonna have french toast and mashed potatoes which i mean i mean come on uh uh morgan 
Uh, that's a starch and a starch. That's a real. That's a real heavy one, right? <laughs> but um, he's like, now we're talking. Yeah, yeah. Chicken teriyaki uh, by uh, for for Merrill, which I don't know what kind of chicken teriyaki they're they're having on a farm in uh, in you know rural Just some chicken with some teriyaki sauce. <laughs> yeah. too. that's it. <laughs> I like if that's your most indulgent thing. Like, I mean, good for you. I suppose it, it could be less healthy. Um, yeah, Graham has a cheeseburger with extra bacon. What is what does Bo want? Spaghetti. Spaghetti. <laughs> a lot of starch. <laughs> yeah heavy table and yeah he's kind of loopy and you can tell it's just like well here's something we can do because like the suspense that's at play both so are the scene that we picked in in air quotes is the dinner and then also sort of like the house prep after the dinner all of this stuff is like the dinner less so they do cut around like the making the dinner but in the the second half of the sequence are all kind of things that you could montage and work over, but M. Night Shyamalan clearly understands that the tension here is that they're waiting for it to happen. Yeah. Because, again, it, there is no mis- escape. There is no secret plan. There is no secret weapon. It's they're waiting for like, the inevitable. Yeah. So, like, the stakes here are, can you keep your children from being afraid? To what degree can you distract your children? So, it's like, I'll, I'll let them eat whatever they want. I'll tell them stories about how they were born. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the sentiment is very evident in in this film and it's what we talked about earlier it's why this movie is able to elevate itself beyond an alien invasion movie and actually becomes much more of a family drama because of its focus on moments like this it's the idea that he is a father who sees the need for his kids to feel um comfortable in the face of almost certain doom Mm -hmm. and as dramatic as that sounds, I think that's the sentiment we're supposed to get as audience members. Like Mel, like Graham, the character thinks that it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's, he's again, he's, he's the ultimate pessimist at this point. He has that's no right. faith in God. We're set he, up. Has, he does not believe in any, any form of deliverance. And he's like, well, we're outmatched, you know, like there's no way out of this. Like we have our local police officer, but what are they going to do? You know, they're just sort of, it's a very passive role for a parent to have to take. And yeah, on rewatching this, it's like, man, like Graham's in a real dark place, right? Yeah, more than I recognized upon mm-hmm. my first few viewings of this movie too. He's he's it's a bad spot to be in, but like I said earlier, his character and the reason why we feel so much for his decisions is because of the place that we we see him in, mm-hmm. and it makes everything that he says more interesting because it comes from this place of pessimism and mm-hmm. literally doesn't care about himself in any way anymore. It's just like, how can he make this demise easier for his children? But obviously it never gets to that point. Yeah. And I mean like the, the conflict in the sequence is that like this dinner thing doesn't really work, right? Like the, he, he makes all this food that they all want. And like the kids aren't really hungry. What's the matter with everyone? Eat. Maybe we should say a prayer. No. Why not? We're not saying a prayer. Bo has a bad feeling. I had a dream. We aren't saying a prayer. It doesn't really get them unfocused on anything. Or, like, you could argue, I think, very readily that, like, oh, the kids are kind of like, wait, why are we going to need everything we want? Right. And, like, even if they don't have the the, the direct awareness or, or the words for, like, oh, like, we're getting whatever we want. because Like, just like where you give your dog a steak before they have to get put down. Or, like, a prisoner gets their last meal request. That's right. right. Like... Everyone's kind of being like a little bit aware of that. Even Breslin's yeah. character, uh, uh, Bo, probably is like, "This isn't right. We shouldn't get exactly what we want all the time." So then, that no one's eating, and 
in like an ultimate petulant act again a, a, a father who's been pushed into a corner he has no confident way of protecting his family or even pretending like he can uh he just sort of lashes out and as I said, Gibson gives a very subdued performance throughout this whole movie, except for this one, where he starts yelling at them. Now, we are going to enjoy this meal. No one can stop us from enjoying this meal, so enjoy it! Stop crying! Graham, she's... Don't yell at her! All right. Since you're all not going to eat, I'm going to try some of everything. He's eating all their food. Stuff like that. Um, He's telling her to stop crying. Yeah, stop crying. Morgan's telling him, like, you know, you couldn't protect mom. You know, things like that. Yeah, Morgan kind of has his break breakdown here, too, because mm-hmm. he says, like, he lashes out really emotionally here and says, like, I hate yeah. you. And then he says, yeah. like, you couldn't save mom. And and Phoenix, as you mentioned, Phoenix takes a very passive role in this too, right? Where he's like, he's like, you know, don't yell at the kids or like, don't tell her not to cry. And yeah, like he's that. on both but, sides. It's but great. He's not, yeah, he's not standing up to him and being like, you have to stop right now. He's just like, come on, Graham. He's like, like it's, line it's crossed, again. line crossed. Yeah. <laughs> he's like the beeper. Yeah, it's real good. And like, I love the way that the dinner sequence is filmed, right? Because the camera is always like at like chair position. Yeah. There are no wides or masters where yeah. it's like, oh, you're in the corner watching this family meal. It's like, no, you're sitting at the table. You have to really be present, as present as the kids are, and as in in proximity as the kids are to their father as he sort of breaks down. Yeah. And he's like shoveling down French toast and mashed potatoes and a bite of cheeseburger before, again, I think a very Shyamalan thing that like, actions speak louder than words they have all this argument and stuff and then they just sort of pull themselves into a hug it's it's one of the moments that has always stood out to me like one of the visuals Mm -hmm. was uh is the like once he starts crying and the kids join him it's the shot of meryl and he like when he tugs on his shirt yeah it it always stands out in my head for some reason i'm like that's a beautiful like real moment it's almost like they didn't act that it could have been improvised Um, um like where he's like you're gonna grab you're gonna grab joaquin here and then he like grabs him and he starts tugging on his shirt, but Joaquin doesn't come right away. It's a great match cut too. Yeah, like it is. Uh, talk Fujimoto, like that's we say stuff like this all the time, but like getting that positioning and pacing right, where you see Gibson reach out of frame, and then you see his hand reach into frame, and things like that, to not make his arm feel longer than it is, things like that. All that positioning is very precise. Yes, um, and you know this is this is hard. This is our bread and butter on this podcast. We're we're talking about literally like two shots and feel like this is really good. This yeah, this, this grabbing the shirt right sequence, here. right? <laughs> um, my the, the most uh, extravagant project that I've ever shot myself. Um, I had a family dinner scene, and it was one of the most surprisingly difficult things that mm. I've shot to date. The fact that like what we talked about, getting the perspective of being at the table is really hard to do for one. Um, Getting the act action to line up from one a- a character to another when you're literally cutting from like singles to another single, mm-hmm. um, really hard. Um, another thing that's really something people don't think about is like everything is shot separately here. Like they're yeah. all locked off. They're not like acting in the same moment. So you're getting you're shooting uh, Rory Culkin say his line and then everything stops and picks up. And mm-hmm. quite often, like you have to move the like in my case, we had to move the entire table across the room to get the right background for the next yeah. character setup. So there's so much that goes into a t- simple table setup like this. And yes, it's a professional set. Yes, they, I'm sure they were better prepared than I was for it. But it's very, very difficult to shoot something like this when there's food on the table. 
you got to worry about continuity there's a million things that can go wrong and the scene is really well executed from a simplicity standpoint well that's the thing and in the case of your movie depending on how much time you have and what your sort of priorities are you can shoot what again i don't know if we've ever actually talked about coverage Right. It's an important thing to understand in terms of editing and cinematography. Coverage essentially being that, like, say the dinner table was just a conversation between um, Merrill and Graham, right? So you can have one camera that's on Gibson for all of his lines and one camera that's on Phoenix for all of his lines. But maybe you shoot one that's on both of them and they go through the whole scene, which allows you that if there's a bum take or a line didn't work or something like that. Or, or the you're cutting out something. Of focus, or you're cutting something you can just cut to that wide one. It gives you these options. That's why they call it coverage. You're you're covering the whole scene, but also you you know, you're covering your ass, right? Um but a lot of the top tier directors and cinematographers will not shoot coverage. It's it's kind of seen as a bit of like an artistic crutch, right? So a lot of them they'll be like, "No, I don't shoot coverage and like you got to make sure you got it and you got to get it in the edit and things like that." Um quite often you'll hear uh I actually spoke to someone very recently specifically on this uh who's a camera operator in uh the toronto tv industry mm-hmm. and he was saying sometimes i'll put my hand over the camera and just it, refuse to give them like coverage. W- yeah. we will shoot like the shot the but i'm gonna yeah. mess up the shot so yeah. that the, when we hand it all to the editor they can't use this angle mm-hmm. because again, no one usually, believes in this angle the yeah, producers it, are telling us we have to get it yeah it usually makes for a less compelling scene um so in le- except in very few cases where there is an intentional reason to have a wide shot Right, if your yeah. camera is a character that has a different perspective, there are there are certainly reasons for it. But that sort of like covering your ass, editors, producers viewpoint, where it's like, well, we don't want to have to come reshoot this if we if something didn't work. Exactly, producers are thinking all about the money. The director mm-hmm. is usually in the position where they're confident in what they think they got, so they don't want to shoot the coverage. Mm-hmm. That that it usually tarnishes the actor's faith. Mm-hmm. in what they're doing a bit usually it's the most disengaged the actors get yeah um but also it is i will say from someone who's produced movies too mm-hmm. it's something you do want as a someone who's mm-hmm. funding the project you yeah you want that safety you net. want some assurances and then i mean don't even like factor in shooting on film yes you don't have monitors <laughs> right factor it's like no nope, yeah. we're shooting no coverage and it's like we'll find out in three days how this looks yes right? exactly Shyamalan actually mentioned that on that big picture podcast that he shoots on film and he'll get it like same day developed. Yeah. But he's like, I do reshoots all the time because sometimes I find out it didn't work. It's something that professional productions have as a luxury that amateur productions don't have. And that's why they can't shoot on film mm-hmm. is they can do same day delivery of uh, like dailies. of daily. Yeah. Sorry. Dailies being everything you shot that day. Usually yeah. you review it in like a meeting that night and you can sort of like check off your storyboard you can walk through the script and be like we got all those lines etc etc this was in focus their eyes weren't blurry all that kind of stuff yeah you can say like okay we now know this actor said this line Mm -hmm. in focus on camera we can move on Mm -hmm. we can move to a different location blah 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 anyway this is a long tangent to say that yes there's no coverage in this scene so consider that as extra complication there's food on the table that's been eaten which you need for continuity and there are camera moves as well there There are are cameras on all the people but i love the shot where gibson uh, Graham sort of loses his temper and he reaches out to fork a piece of French toast and the camera sort of moves out of his way yeah. and draws him towards you and the fork is out of focus and lands just in front of the lens. It's a great shot. It is. It's. It takes so much meticulous planning to just nail 
framing and uh, focus like that, and mm-hmm. it's just awesome. Um, Shyamalan does some really great things with this camera. We touched we touched on that a bit with the Sixth Sense. Some of it feels student filmy, but he's nailing it to a such professional level that it's not. But his ideas are still so um, fresh and mm-hmm. youthful that yeah. he's so open to conquering like these really complex camera things, mm-hmm. seemingly with ju- just for the fun of nailing them. Yeah. And I, I like stuff like this. It yeah, makes we, it really engaging. And we've talked about how his, his pacing's always up and yeah. it's things like this. Uh, and we mentioned in The Sixth Sense that, like, when you're watching his movies, you can tell you're watching a guy that loves movies. And he loves making movies. And there's an energy to that that's with some filmmakers. And some of them, it's not with them. And it's not that they don't enjoy it, but they're making a different type of art. That's right. But this is, this is always engaging. It's always compelling. And I mean, I love the dinner sequence, but we tacked on a little bit extra. I, I'm ready to move on to the other part unless yeah. you got more dinner. Yeah, um, I, I just want the connecting piece is uh, when they go into the closet where the TV is being kept and the national broadcast is off. It's happening. And I really like that moment. Um, and you get, I think another one of the taglines for the film was, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's when you get the line from Mel Gibson mm-hmm. where he says that. Um, I think it's a great moment. It's really nice pacing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I wonder, I had a half-baked theory that like I'd have to watch the movie four or five more times and take really meticulous notes to nail down. But part of me thinks that almost every scene ch- transition um, occurs because of a stimulus, essentially a sign, that is that is of a sensory nature, right? And I don't know if that's just something you could say about all, but like... I think we've talked before about how scenes should always be, you know, the the general, like, the golden rule that, like, one scene to the next should be a therefore or a but. There should be a connection, not a and then this happens, right? right? So there, it's prompted by this signal, but other sequences they change when it's, like, Gibson saying, I can't hear my kids. What's wrong? I don't hear my children. Right? All these things are prompted by, like, That's a great something line, you yeah. saw, something you heard, something you felt, all of which are, by definition, signs. I don't know if it's clever on purpose. I don't know if I'm reaching. It would take a lot more research and careful watching, but... My, my favorite one of those, just for the record, because I wanted to include it in the episode today, was when Abigail Breslin says... Baby, why don't you just change the channel on the television? I did. And? Same shows on every station. The same shows on every station. Yeah. I right. love that line. It's really good. And they all kind of, and then there's it like that second the look out of the room. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. The, the the transitions in this movie are phenomenal. Like the way the plot pushes itself, yeah. really good. Um, I would just say this in one sentence because we don't have time to go go into it. I love how they they break up the night of experience when his wife dies. The, yeah, the, the first chunk of it where Cherry Jones is sort of explaining to him what's happening, um, and then and it cuts both away. Kind of in before... shock is so good. I like that you don't get any of the wife in that first flashback. It's yeah. like just Cherry Jones telling him what the situation and it is. It just hangs over your head, and you're yes. like, "When are we gonna? When are we gonna see that? And what are we gonna see? Yeah, no, it's great." But the um, the house prep as well, like it kind of continues that theme of like, how do you keep your kids calm? And it's like, do you tell them stories? And like, it's very Shyamalan is like, no, yeah, stories are stories are gonna save us all. Like stories are, are important, and he's 100 percent right. He loves it too an insane degree that becomes a problem lady in the water, but um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I thought that these, the, the birth stories that he tells both Bo and Morgan, I like how there's, first of all, my favorite thing is that they're split up. 
they're mm-hmm. separate by like a minute or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're both at a time of, of need seemingly, um, of desperation on Graham's part, but then the kid, when the kids need it seemingly too. Um, I like that they're both different stories. I like that there's nothing really s- like that treads over the other one. I like that they're both unique as far as birth stories go, but they're both also believable birth stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like you were a miracle child or anything like that. It's just that you smiled and kids that young aren't supposed to smile in Bo's case. They put you on the table to clean you up. And you looked up at me and you smiled. They say babies that young can't smile. You smiled. Let's go down. And in Morgan's case, it's much more like scientific and objective. It's like, your mom was bleeding a lot, so like we had to take you out of the room. But when we got you back in the room, and then he's back mm. to the positivity side of the story. And she looked at you, and you looked at her, and you just stared at each other for the longest time. And then she said real soft, Hello, Morgan. I'm your mama. You look just how I dreamed. And obviously... The part that the part that I love about this in the script is that there's so much more insinuated about both of their births mm-hmm. that Mel Gibson's character Graham is choosing to omit to the kids. Yeah. There's so much that mm-hmm. he's intentionally leaving out, and it's obvious to us as a viewer if you're paying attention to what he's saying. I think that's amazing script writing. Just the fact that we are aware of what's not in the script because of what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's very well telegraphed, sort of what's going on there. And again, this role a father plays for children, where it's like these are the things they need to know, and these are the things they don't. This is m- maybe the only form of control Gibson has right now. Is like I can tell them a good story. Yep, I can't keep them safe. And I love the idea too that like back to back, the food didn't make them feel better. Actually, you know what? Actually, that's not as special as you thought. It, it was kind of better in concept than it was in reality. You know what works? Tell them a little bit about their mom. Tell them something that makes it clear that, like, you love them. This is a story you remember. This is a story you thought of, right? You didn't tell them a different story first. Yeah. Right? Very touching stuff. As, um, as far as a, a script perspective goes as well, it also brings back our our recollections of the mother character. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to dive into a bit of that history over the last half hour of the film. So. Mm-hmm. It, it does serve a narrative purpose as well for us as an audience member. It kind of recollects that uh, another character exists in this family mm-hmm. picture. Yeah. And I love that, like, you know, this is all well. They're boarding up the house. It's not like they all gathered around the fire and they have, yeah. like, the shotgun ready. And he's like, I'm going to tell you a story. It's like, we're, we, we, we're doing stuff here. So, like, it's probably not as cloying or heartfelt as it could be. I think there there is a degree of control here, even though Shyamalan is a he's a sappy guy. He loves his stories. He loves kids. He loves being a dad. But he likes pacing too. Yeah. So like I think that going. all works and then and then, you know, they, they go through their stories and they, they've got the things boarded up that they can and then you hear their dog, the second dog, yelp outside. Isabel. What a uh, complex moment that follows that, because I think it reads super funny. Where it's it's one of the few like wide shots of the whole family when they're not like sitting on a couch or like embracing. It's the four of them standing there, Listening. and you see like yeah, you hear the dog yelp, and you see like Phoenix and Gibson both like kind of like look around because it's like everyone knows the four year old knows the dog just died. What could you say? And it's a pretty long shot. Like it it's is. like fifteen seconds. The shot of the dog yelping. <laughs> no, of them react like just sort of being like, well. 
I was gonna say the alien one before. Alien just killed our dog. Yeah, like the non-reaction shots also long because yeah. it's like just zoom, zooming into the wall. Yeah, I love again. You're totally locked in their perspective, just like you yeah. at the dinner table. Yeah, it's like there are no shots of the outside of the house. No, because you're not outside the house. You're you're stuck in yeah. there. And it's what keep it's that continuity of that that really persists and keeps that idea that this is well the family is what's important here, mm-hmm. not not the global invasion that's happening, the family. Yeah, but there's not even like you know. I think an editor or producer would understand if someone was like, "I'm going to put a shot of like outside the house, and you'll see the corn move or something." Well, you know what right? they do that's brilliant though. They did um, they show the wind chimes before mm-hmm. this. Like it's the it's the immediate sequence of shots before the scene we're talking about today mm-hmm. is the wind chimes the ver- variety of wind chimes they have on their patio mm-hmm. and then after the dog yelp one of the first things you hear is one of the wind chimes get hit yeah get bumped into and right away like we're brought back into like the reality of like this so we know that mm-hmm. the wind chimes there the family knows the wind chimes there like it's once again bringing that to a connection but not in a way that we have to be removed from the space that we're in you're yeah. not like zooming to outside to see the alien bump this wind chime mm-hmm. yeah and we we actually we kind of glossed over the way that the dinner scene ends is they're all embracing and it pulled the camera pulls out and it's the uh the baby monitor to the baby monitor yeah. it's a great yeah. shot The system they've already set up, it's a phenomenal shot. Yeah. A great little button on it. But yeah, no, like I think the the script focusing on the family in the sequence is, is fantastic. You learn things and it reinforces things and it really touches on, on like this existential horror that Graham is grappling with in not a overwrought way, in not a melodramatic way. Yeah. Um filmed super well slow buildup of suspense and tension because it, it is like you're just trapped in there with them the shot choices all support that idea and then there's even you know there's some moments of levity and things like that like i think i think it's a, a, a wonderful sequence and like a great suggestion by you because i think there's so much to dig in there and it didn't immediately jump out at me as one of the more iconic sequences yeah because it's kind of not but like there's so much that works in it just a final note on that we we talked on the sixth sense podcast just about how diverse the demographic was that was able to access that movie where whether it was teenage boys looking for the jump scares or whether it was um 50 year old mothers um kind of gravitating towards like the the relationship in the sixth sense um between the two main characters or between bruce willis and his wife in this movie i feel like there's an equal balance between like an audience that's there looking for some of the good scares that this movie does offer. We should, mm-hmm. we glossed over them, but it does have some good scare points mm-hmm. and balancing that really nicely with the ability to connect emotionally with the father character as he tries to like protect his children. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really tough balance to ride as a filmmaker. And once again, why we're talking about this movie 20 years later. Yeah. Yeah. It has a lot of strengths and, and that that's absolutely right. Like it's a balancing act. I think you put it great. But uh, with that, I mean, I think we'll we'll move on and wrap up here. Um, my shout-out's nice and simple, something that hadn't occurred to me in a little while, but, like, uh, at the opening, when you want to see the signs in the cornfield, they, they do a, this big pull-out helicopter shot, and it's you know it's a helicopter shot because there's a, just a little bit of shake, right? It's not pers- it's on the perfectly takeoff, smooth yeah. and glossy. And I was like, oh, I forgot how great that is and how much I like knowing, seeing that little shudder, that little shake, which you don't get with drone shots. Drone shots are smooth and glossy and they lack just a little bit of texture. And I don't want to, 
I don't want to sound like some old timers like, no, vinyl's warmer and scratchier. Helicopter shots, they've got more texture. <laughs> but like, I just want to point it out. I kind of miss it. And it's the kind of thing now, if I if and when I do see it in a movie, I'll be like, hey, they, they did that. You know, they did it on purpose. Oh, yeah. There's like a really distinct cutoff point somewhere in the mid 20 teens mm-hmm. where they cut off helicopter shots almost in, like overnight it seemed like with movies like they just stopped using helicopter shots yeah. so it's a treat seeing them what i found most impressive about that opening one that you're talking about is so you don't see the corn moving mm. and it's like there's a helicopter in the air there though yeah shouldn't the corn be like swaying and wrinkling in the camera wind? i assume yeah exactly there's so much cut off beneath no that, that's exactly yeah. what it is it's just an ang- the camera is either positioned outside of the chopper somewhere mm-hmm. Or it's like angled in a particular way where the helicopter's taking off on a completely different angle from what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And in both ways, it's really cool. Yeah. So good shout out. I was actually going to comment, make that comment before I saw it was your mm-hmm. shout out. So. No, and then yours, uh, you want to talk about uh, Merritt Weaver um, from uh, one, of, one of my favorite movies, uh, uh, Michael Clayton. She plays Anna. No way. I did not piece yeah. that. To, I didn't even piece it together. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. So what, that's the actor's name? Yeah. Um, Merritt Weaver. She name. <laughs> sounds like one of the names in this movie. Yeah, it does. Um, and uh, she plays the character of Tracy Abernathy, which is honestly a really unique, funny part to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when Graham goes to the, uh, pharmacy. the pharmacy to pick up a prescription for Morgan. And one of the, I guess she's part of the church contingency. Mm-hmm. Um she recognizes him as like her former priest. So she asks him for a confession and it ends up like, we don't hear a lot of it, but his reactions are very funny. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite part, my, my actual shout out is when he gets back to seeing his kids, he's like, you guys are not allowed to speak or hang <laughs> yeah. associate with Tra- Tracy Abernathy. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, we don't know what she said to him in the end, but mm-hmm. it can't be good. No, she's talking about like her boyfriend and yeah. some stuff that they did and the, the language that she used. So it's, it's a very funny sequence in yeah. a movie that again, could be super dour when you consider the, the nature of, of his position as a father, but it's very funny. Like, Mel Gibson's probably in the top ten like roll eye rollers. Yeah, ever. he's a good he's eye really roller. Really good at it. Um, and I think like I, if I remember right, in this sequence, there's like like they cut away from the pharmacy to like do the bookstore. Yes, they do. After she had made the request, and he's like, "Don't call me father," and he's like, "I don't really do that anymore." Then they cut away, and when they cut back, she's mid confession, and he's just kind of like, "It's the editing that makes it. this funny too." Yeah. Yes, absolutely, it's yeah. that. It's it's why I call this like the whole scene is just a unique funny moment because. It seems unimportant, but it's also a good moment for understanding where he's at as a priest mm-hmm. and understanding his frustration with being um, torn by his religion mm-hmm. and people still seeing him as this figure that they can look up to and his him grappling with that is yeah. important for his character arc. Yeah. So it's a really well-used part of com- or point of comedy that really alleviates some of the tension at this time where you don't need it. Mm-hmm. Um, really clever filmmaking and deployment of comedy. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, for our recommendations, I'm going with one. I, I It's a bit of a cheat because this was recommended in the conversation of signs on a different podcast. I was listening to, again, this is the big picture with the guesting on it was the Pure Cinema podcast guys. Yeah. Tay, you're a fan of. You yeah, got me onto them. Those guys are amazing. Those guys have an insane encyclopedic knowledge of all these movies I've never heard of. And one of them in the context of signs recommended this movie called Altered. Um it's from 2006. It's by Eduardo Sanchez, who's one of the guys who made Blair Witch Project. 
Uh, it's not like Signs at all. It's like an alien horror movie. A uh, little bit of home invasion, a little bit of, I don't know, even argu- arguably torture. Has some very cool effects, obviously not a massive budget, and I'd never heard of it before at all. Uh, and I, I really dug it. So I would recommend you go check out Altered. Uh, just don't, I wouldn't program it as a double feature with Signs. It's a completely different tone and vibe. What do you got, Tay? I think Tay's double checking that he hasn't recommended this before. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I had to double check that I hadn't recommended this one before <laughs> because um, I feel like I should have at some point. It's got our our main man who we haven't mentioned in probably like 15 podcasts, Elias Kateas in it. You know it. Yeah, who's a, a wonderful Canadian actor. Um, I, believe, I believe there's a few Canadian actors in this movie, but um, it's the one I want to recommend is from 2009. It's called The Fourth Kind. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is an amazing alien movie, but it is good. It's in a in a way that's like just it's different from a lot of alien movies you'll, you're used to seeing. It takes a really chilling perspective of an uh, Alaskan town called Nome mm. that's dealing with uh, people who are being abducted, perhaps. It stars uh, Mila Jovovich, uh, Will Patton, and as I mentioned, Elias Kateas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a really strong statement film, but maybe not best in execution, but worth checking out. It's by the director Ola Tunde Osun Sanmi, uh, who I've never heard of since, but um, mm. I think that this movie had a, a unique impact on me, and I, I, I'll recommend it for a connection to Signs. Well, fantastic. That's another one I haven't seen, so that's going on the list. Hopefully check that one out soon. And with that, we're wrapping up M. Night Shyamalan month. Uh, Tay and I haven't decided what we're doing next month yet, so keep an eye on Instagram. Uh, when we're lining it up with movies, uh, I made a list. Uh, I mean, there's that Willem Dafoe movie where he's trapped inside, so it's called Inside, you know? I so thought maybe, that was already a movie starring maybe, Bo Burnham. Maybe, yeah, right? A much better one, which we talked about uh, on the 2021 recap. Right. Um, so I don't know. Maybe we'll do bottle episodes. We got John Wick 4, so I don't know. We're looking at some martial arts, maybe, because we've already done Keanu. Not to say we couldn't do Keanu again, but... We could do um, Keanu again. Martial arts we haven't specifically done. I just don't know if we can talk for an hour about martial arts. It's a pretty visual medium. <laughs> Tends to be. We'll see. But, uh, so yeah, keep an eye on the Instagram for that. You can connect with us there. You can choose an email at singleservingcinema at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, other than that, I don't know. Uh, go catch Knock at the Cabin. And uh, yeah. you know, keep, keep I'll swinging. Be there. Felt wrong not to swing.